Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that the rain has moved out of the area. And Lord, you have blessed us with a beautiful day that we could go out and find all sorts of amazing creatures that just shout your existence. And we thank you also for the safety, Lord, that we've had throughout this trip. And tonight, Lord, as we approach this time, as we open up your word, and ask that your spirit, Lord, speak to us and teach us. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will fall upon ears that are ready to hear. And that, that it just won't become just words, but Lord, things that you will really speak to us. I do believe strongly tonight with this lesson that there are some people here, at least one, maybe more, that really need to hear this one. That you really want to teach them something about their life and their walk with you. And so, Lord, as we approach this time, we ask for your blessing, we ask for your spirit to teach us. Open up our hearts, our minds, to see, Lord, what you would have us to see. And, Lord, in doing so, that we would grow closer to you and that you would gain glory through this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On a marine biology trip back in 1997, 1997, there was a girl from my school who came on the trip. Um, and the hotel back then that we were using was a place called uh, the Tropic Air. Um, it's no longer there. It's, it's gone. But it had a nice beach there. And Gina, this student... Being from the Midwest, who had never seen the ocean before or whatever, the very first day, you know how the first day was? You get here and it's like, okay, you get some free time while we're setting things up. Well, Gina immediately went to her room, changed into a swimsuit, and went running into the ocean, jumped in the ocean, started swimming, and then started screaming bloody murder. And sometimes, you know, there's jellyfish there and whatever. So I came running down to find out what was going on, only to see her not in any trouble. And I said, Gina, what's the matter? And she, she stood up and she says, this is really salty. Yeah. Um, really salty. It was for her. It was quite a shock. I mean, she knew that it was going to be salty, but she said, and I asked her, didn't you know the ocean is salty? Yeah, but I didn't know there was this much salt in it. So yeah, it wasn't a real pleasant taste for her. And much of, the, of our salt that is used in cooking and in the food industry and stuff like this is from the earth. I mean, we, we see a lot of things with salt. And in most cases, most of the table salt that you use, if you research this, I did. I wanted to find out where does most of the table salt come from. And what they do is um, there are places throughout the world, there's many in the United States, where deep down in the ground there are huge salt deposits. And they drill wells down into these things, and they pump water down there, which dissolves the salt. And then they... By pumping water down, it gets forced back up, this really salty water, and the salt water then comes up. And with all the, the water with this dissolved uh, brine in it, they boil these, uh, the water coming up now that's all salty and stuff, they boil it in uh, vacuum pans. And then the salt crystals, as it boils and stuff, and as it starts to um, being processed like this, the salt crystals fall to the bottom in a slurry down at the bottom. And then they stop the machines and they take out the slurry 
and let it sit out and then they dry it. Sometimes they dry it with certain machines and stuff, but they dry it and they package it and that is your salt. Like when you were salting your hamburger tonight, that's what you were putting on there. That's where most of that salt comes from. Um, the ocean is full of salt and it's harvested in many places. On the island of Anagua, probably that direction, um, the island of Anagua in the southern Bahamas, there, uh, Morton, the salt company, Morton Salt, back in the 1950s bought a large section of this huge island and it was a very flat island. The Bahamas are extremely flat and it was flat areas and it had low uh, sections and so they, they made what's called uh, a solar site for salt. Um, these solar sites, they have large pans, huge, like small lakes, if you will, that they open up and they let water, seawater, just run into them. And then they close it off and they just let the sun do the work. The sun evaporates the water, leaving the salt. Then they'll open it up again, let some more salt water come in from the ocean. Then they seal that and they let that evaporate. And they keep doing this until they get just you know, quite a few feet of just salt. And then they use bulldozers come in and they scrape all this stuff up. There is a place just like that, not too far from here, in Port Canaveral, Florida, there is a salt pan place just like that. Because you can find a lot of salt in the ocean and you can, in the semi-tropics down here and in the tropics, it's easy to obtain. What I did the very first day we were here, of course, we haven't had the greatest sunshine <laughs> this week, but what I did is I took this pan, um, this plastic pan, which I don't know where it came from, but it was something in the nature center has been sitting here for a long time, and I washed it out. And when we got here, I walked over to the pier and I put in about an inch of water. And then I've been setting it up here on this table, letting the sun evaporate it. Of course, then we got a lot of rain and rain got in there and everything. But even today, this morning, I went back out here and I poured a little bit more salt water in there and let it sit there. And if you look in there, you will see in this black pan, there's salt crystals all over. And I tasted it. It's salty. That's what it is. It's salt. And so, yeah, you can actually... That is just salt. Yep. That's salt. Yes. So, it's really simple to get salt down here in the tropics. When my wife and I used to live in the Bahamas, um, we used to go out to Rose Island. If you've read the textbook, you know it's like my favorite place on earth. And Rose Island has a lot of rocky deposits, not big boulders and stuff, but it's coral that has just been wore away in sections. And there's large pockets and holes right in the rocks that during storms, the waves and stuff get splashed up there and then they sit and evaporate. Another storm comes by and this wave shot comes up and splashes in there. And over time, it gets a lot of salt just depositing in there as it evaporates off. You can literally go up to these little holes in the rocks and just scoop out a handful of salt. It's just, there's that much in these things. So if we ever forgot to bring salt on the boat, there was no problem because all we had to do was just go over to one of the little salt pan things, one of the holes, and you could get all the salt you wanted. Um, and salt has a very interesting history. So as I was preparing for this a couple of weeks ago, I uh, started to, to look for the history of salt. I contacted a couple of these salt companies, like Morton Salt, I contacted them and, uh, to try and get a history of salt, because I figure these corporations, most of them have an education department, being a teacher, usually you can get stuff like that as a teacher for free. For instance, I don't know if you're aware of this, if you've sat through the popcorn class in the Nature Center, 
as um, <laughs> yeah, Peter Rockhold's going crazy right now um, because he teaches the popcorn class many times when he was there. Um, there is the National Popcorn Association. There really is such an organization. And if you're a teacher, you can, um, you can submit by uh, email or phone call, and they will send you an educational packet that has DVDs, and it's got cookbooks and history about uh, popcorn and posters and everything, everything you would, and more than you would ever need. And so I thought, well, maybe the Morton Salt Company does the same thing. So I contacted them, and sure enough, they, they didn't have a DVD and stuff like that, but they did give me access to quite a few different things about salt. So let me tell you what the Morton Salt people told me about the history of salt. You ready for some of these weird facts? This is like one of these categories on Jeopardy. If you ever get on Jeopardy and there's a salt category, you learn the stuff, you just run that category. So, this, see, this will be very useful in your life. <laughs> so, salt has been linked in history since ancient times. It's been used since ancient times to improve flavor of food. I think everybody can figure that one out. You put salt on food. I put it on hamburger tonight. So to improve in uh, flavor of food, popcorn, you put salt on popcorn a lot of times. Second thing, I was astonished with this when I did not know this, or if I had, I'd forgotten. It used to be worshipped as a god in certain cultures. Salt was a god. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if it rained on it, you just, he just disappeared. <laughs> salt has been used, I knew this, salt has been used as money in a lot of cultures all over the world. It's a preservative for food. Oh, I forgot to bring down a piece of beef jerky. I was going to bring that down here and eat that right in front of y'all, but, well, I guess that's a nice, not a nice thing to do anyway. But I make beef jerky. I made beef jerky before coming on the trip and use salt to make beef jerky. And the salt in the beef jerky, that's another class that we do in the Nature Center, the salt um, helps to retard the, the, the growth of bacteria and, and fungis, and so um, it's, it's a preservative. You can use that. Did you know that salt used to be used in ancient Rome to buy slaves? You could buy a slave by just throwing bags of salt out. That was like currency to buy a slave. They would sometimes sell you a slave in exchange for salt. In ancient Ethiopia, I found out that they made salt into discs that was actually used as money. Mm hmm. Because this crystalline st uh, structure holds up pretty good like that. The English increased their use of salt during the reign of Queen Elizabeth when she required her subjects to eat fish on Wednesdays and Fridays. And so they had to increase the salt requirement. Matter of fact, the French Revolution was sparked not just because Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake, but also she put a salt tax upon the people which riled them all. So a salt tax. Napoleon's army, when he was retreating from Moscow after his terrible defeat uh, in Russia, many troops died because of lack of salt in their diet. In Slavic countries, salt is given to a bride and a groom when they get married to symbolize health and happiness. As I was reading this one, it reminded me of something. At Christmas time, if you ever watched It's a Wonderful Life, and when they are going to Mr. Martini's home, his new home, they actually present him with wine, a loaf of bread, and a container of salt. In that Christmas classic. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
In the United States, most of us know that they built the Erie Canal for transport, but did you know that the primary purpose of building the Erie Canal was to transport salt on barges? I didn't know that. It has been used for centuries to make mortar for buildings and stuff. If you live up north, you know it's used for roadways and sidewalks to melt snow and ice. And actually, what they use in the Bahamas, a lot of that, that's what that goes to. And it's also used if you have a water conditioner at home. You put salt in it. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about salt as you study salt. And there were more things, but I'm not going to get into all the different uh, avenues and, and uses of salt that have been gone through history. But I thought those would be just a few interesting ones, like I say, that will help you with when you get on the, the TV show Jeopardy. But anyway, salt is mentioned 46 times in the Bible. 46 times in the Bible, salt is specifically mentioned. 32 times in the Old Testament, 14 times in the New Testament, salt is, is mentioned. And throughout history, as I've already shown you, it's been a very, very valuable commodity. And in studying the history, another thing I found out from Morton Salt is that there have been periods in time that salt has been much more valuable, worth more, than its weight in gold. Salt has sometimes been more valuable than gold. Um, I'll take the gold. <laughs> Imagine putting a salt ring on, oh, here. Here, hon, let's get engaged and let's get married and put salt ring on. No, I think they're going to want gold. In ancient Greece, salt was so valuable, it was called theon. Theon, theos, theo, theology, that is God. Salt was actually a word for the gods being divine. It was that important. In ancient Rome, they used to actually pay soldiers, instead of using coins of silver or whatever, they would pay them in bags of salt. They'd pay the Roman soldiers in salt. And matter of fact, the word salary, when you get a job and you get a salary, that word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, salary, salt. You see the root word there? That's where we get the word salary. It has to do with salt. Because they used to pay their soldiers in salt. And since Bible times, salt is still something that is exchanged as a gift of friendship. Um, when, or in, uh, if you're making an agreement with someone, you exchange salt. They still do that in the Middle East in certain areas. So salt is a really interesting commodity. But not just that. Jesus specifically taught on salt. And one of the parables that he mentions and talks about deals specifically with salt. So we are going to now take a look in these next like 15 minutes at this parable that Jesus gave us dealing with salt. Since we're, we're down here surrounded by salt, you get out of the water after going on an excursion, you got salt on your skin and everything as it dries off. So salt is all around us, so I thought this would be a good parable for us to study. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, you probably have all heard this parable many times. You've probably heard it and preached on many, many times. I have. And let's take a look at what this parable says. It's, uh, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's the parable. That's the story. There is your lesson. Voila. And I must admit, in my life, I'm going to be 60 years old this year. Yeah, I'm what we call an ancient flatulent. That's an old fart. <laughs> but <laughs> no more jokes on that one there. That was the end of that. <laughs> but I got to tell you, in, in my 60 years, I don't know how many sermons I have heard on this passage. I have heard so many different interpretations of this parable. Um, and our reference to being salt of the earth. And as I was sitting and writing this and, and thinking back to many sermons that I have heard over time, four really stand out, four different interpretations of this. And I just want to briefly say what, what I've often heard, and you, no doubt many of you have probably heard a couple of these, if not all four of these also, and maybe even more. But let me tell you the four that really stand out in my memory as I read this parable, this is what goes through my mind uh, from what I've heard preachers at the pulpit telling me. Number one, that salt is a purifying agent, which is true. So we Christians, what Jesus is saying is that we Christians need to be pure in heart. Salt purifies things. We need to be pure in heart. I mean, after all, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So that's one interpretation I've heard many times. Another one is that we Christians need to add flavor to the world we live in. We should add flavor. We Christians should stand out, and because we're different, we should add flavor to this sour world. I've heard that sermon many times. Or a third one. Since salt is used as a medicine, if you add it to a cut, it stings, right? You've all done that. Maybe some of you gals have shaved your legs this week and then walked into the ocean and like, hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo, wow, <laughs> zapper on my legs, yeah. Um, if you think that's something, come to the Dead Sea with me to Israel and shave your legs and then walk in there. Uh, oh, you got it in your eyes. When you were at the Dead Sea, you got the salt in your eyes. Todd, I told you not to put it in your eyes. <laughs> It is the worst experience. I've heard people screaming bloody murder at the Dead Sea when they get salt in it. I mean, you're not supposed to put it in your eyes. I said you can rub the mud on your body. And then I need to get the water off and I screwed up. Yeah, salt will burn. It really burns. Well, because salt is a, a, can be medicinal and makes it, it does make cuts sting, some pastors have taught that we Christians need to bring a sting to the world to make the world uncomfortable. Christians should make the world uncomfortable, and we should be the stinging sense for that, the thing that purifies it, the, medis, the medicine that the world needs. Uh, are we Christians to do this? And the fourth thing that I, I could recall from my earlier days Eating salt makes us thirsty. I mean, it's hard to eat a big bowl of popcorn. When I eat popcorn, I don't, uh, these bags are so wrong. When they say like microwave popcorn, that this is, you know, like five servings, come on. That's, that's barely one, you know. But when I eat popcorn and stuff, I get really thirsty. I don't know if you do, but I get really thirsty. So um, salt makes us crave, you know, uh, we, 
we crave something to drink to, to quench the thirst. And so we Christians are supposed to cause, we're supposed to cause a thirst for people to have of God in the world today. We as Christians should be living lives that make people just want to thirst to get to know God. And some people say that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, in all honesty, I think all four of those interpretations have some valid points to it. I do. I can see that in every single one of these. I, I don't think that they're, they're that far off. But as I sat and I studied this, I do believe there's something else much more important. And that's what I want to share with you here. I think there's something more here than that. And whenever you're doing a Bible study, the last thing you ever want to do when you do a Bible study is take one verse and just study that one verse. Go back, if you have an interlinear Bible or if you have like a, a New American Standard or an English Standard, does this often also, it lists the, the ancient paragraphs. And as you know from studying in English, you just don't take a middle sentence in a paragraph and try and interpret everything about that paragraph. The first sentence is like the thesis sentence, so the whole paragraph is based upon that. This, this uh, parable that we're talking about is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you go back and you see what, you know, Jesus is teaching a lot of lessons and stuff, so if we start to look at this, not just as the verse, but the whole thing of what's going on as he's teaching these multiple lessons here. He says in here, in this parable, um, Jesus calls his followers, that's us born-again Christians, he calls us the salt of the earth. Now, what does the term, first of all, earth mean here? It's, it's not the physical earth. Jesus is referring to the world. Not just the physical world, but mankind. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of mankind, all of people. My followers, you are to be the salt of all of the people. And since salt is an ancient commodity, and since ancient time, man's been making strong advances in technology and, and in medicine. I mean, look at the, the advances that we have done just in the last hundred years in medicine, in education, in science, in technology, in psychology. There have been tremendous strides that humans have made. Yet, you would think with all of these great steps forward, we would be a better society. But you know something? <laughs> Though we've gained quality in life, people have not really improved society. People are just as corrupt, just as immoral, if not even more immoral than they were 100 years ago. I mean, it's getting really bad nowadays. Of course, Paul did say, and as you approach the end times, it was going to get like that. You're going to have more people, you know, turning away from God and making fun of God, and, and uh, immorality is going to run rampant everywhere, and boy, it's, it's what's happening. Even though we make all these advances, that humans are making all these great advances, morally, we are so corrupted. It, it's, it's terrible how we are in this world today. We have degenerated, if you will into an unethical and actually a depraved society. Instead of improving the morals, improving the integrity and the spiritual quality of life, it's doing just the opposite. Even when our founding fathers started this country, the United States, 
read the, if you don't believe me, read the, um, oh, and I forgot the letters, the federal papers, that's the thing. Read the federal papers. Um, you'll see that they thought and started off this country to be a very moral country. They said you can't have a democracy without a morality, and you can't have a morality without religious principle. So they started off all this trying to become a very moral society, and what's happened is we have become, for the word of freedom, we have become more and more and more immoral, just the opposite of what our founding fathers were hoping to do. So when Jesus mentions the word earth here, this is what he's talking about. And he uses a noun for us. The noun is the salt of. The salt of. That's a noun as a phrase, a phrase here. He's using it in reference to his followers. And it's our responsibility now in this world. That's what he is saying. You are responsible. Just as salt has been used to uh, preserve food in the preservation of food, we are to stand apart from this corrupt world. And I'm telling you, it's getting harder and harder for Christians to do that. To stand apart in this corrupt world. We have been called to be the preservative. To be the preservative of the world, of mankind. Salt is a preservative. You use it to make jerky. It retards the growth of fungi, of decay, of bacteria. Things that will spoil things. Things that will corrupt the meat. Salt does this. So Jesus is not making an accident when he says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the ones that are to be the preservative to stop this. We Christians are supposed to help retard the moral and spiritual decay of the world around us. That's what Jesus is telling us to do here. You follow that? That's our purpose. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He said something that was very fascinating and has often puzzled me, particularly when I hear pastors teaching on this sometimes. Um, Jesus continues and he says, but if salt has lost its taste. Now, I'll tell you, I've heard some bizarre things on this one. Being a science person, I have sat there cringing in, in my seat, in my pew or whatever, when I hear a pastor say that salt can actually lose all of its flavor and become useless. Really? Can salt really lose its taste? What is salt? It's a molecule of sodium, a molecule of chlorine, ionically bonded together, and just sitting here, it's not going to break that bond. That bond is a really, really tight bond. It's hard to break that bond. So how does that not become salty? It's always going to be salty. But I've heard people say, oh yeah, salt can actually lose its saltiness. No, it doesn't. It's still going to be sodium chloride. So what's Jesus meaning here then? If salt can actually lose its taste. Well, salt doesn't become unsalty. Make sure you understand that. But, are you listening? Salt can become contaminated by other elements, which can overpower the flavor of the salt. 
You get that? The natural taste can be hidden by contamination. When this happens, when other minerals and other elements are added to the sodium chloride, you can mask a lot of the flavor of the salt. The salt's still there. It's still going to be salty, but it's useless. It becomes useless when it's contaminated. Bad salt's not worth anything. So what's this mean? Jesus is telling us right here that just as salt can become contaminated with other minerals and become tasteless and useless, Christians too can become contaminated. How do we get Christians contaminated? Christians can become contaminated by the immoral and corrupt world we live in. If we start accepting and going on to the way that the world lives things, we can become contaminated. When a Christian gets involved in worldliness of sin, they become contaminated. They can no longer be valuable for God's service. They can no longer be an effective tool or agent in the kingdom of God. Now, please understand, they don't lose their salvation. Becoming contaminated, that doesn't make you lose your salvation. But what happens is we become unable to be effective for God's kingdom. And we've seen a lot of that happening with so-called Christians that are out there in the limelight on TVs and stuff like this. Many times they get contaminated, they fall into sin, they fall into the corrupt world, they start accepting the aspects of the corrupt world, and they lose their effectiveness for the kingdom of God. We can lose our purity we can become disqualified in our service to the Lord if we become contaminated. As Jesus said, we are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are no longer a useful tool in God's hand if you allow yourself to become contaminated by the worldliness, immorality, and corruption. And we can be taken captive like that. The book of Colossians tells us flat out that Christians can be taken captive by worldly philosophy and thinking. We are to live in this corrupt and contaminated world in a separate way. We are not to live as the world lives. God commands us. This isn't an, an option. God commands us on how to live in this messed up world. And he does this very, very clearly in many places in Colossians. But I'm going to take it out of 1 Peter as we get, come to the end here. I want to read something out of 1 Peter because God is telling us how we're supposed to live in this corrupted world so that we do not become contaminated, so that we will still be good, useful, like salt, and bring flavor and everything to the world. And it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16. God tells us this. Obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, of the worldly ways. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in what? All of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As that's quoting right out of the book of Leviticus. 
but holy in all of our conduct. That means you just don't live a holy life on Sunday morning when you get ready to go to church. That doesn't mean that you just live a holy life when you're around your Christian friends at youth group. That doesn't mean that you just live your holy life um, when, when you are on a youth retreat or a missions retreat or something. That's not what he says. We are called to be holy in all of our conduct, all the time, to live holy lives. Because he is holy, his spirit lives in us, we are to live holy lives. Do not become like the world. Jesus wants us to influence this morally corrupt and contaminated world by our purity. By our purity. God wants us to inspire a thirst for righteousness in the lost. How can they have that unless we show them what it's like? He wants us to have a preserving influence on this world. See, these are all things like salt. And that's why he leaves us here. Instead of the moment we become saved, he just takes us up into heaven. He leaves us here because this place is so contaminated. It is so morally corrupt. He leaves you here to make an influence in this world. But this requires us to live a holy life. Set apart, set apart from this corruption that we face every single day. To be a good salt, we must remain pure and holy. I've put a hymn at the end of each one of these lessons, and this one here is a hymn that has special meaning for me. It's probably one many of you have never even heard of. I'll go where you want me to go. Back in 1997, when I was camping at Fort Wilderness, in the summer... We were camping in front of the Sioux cabin, right on the bluff of the lake there. Those of you who have been there, that was our favorite place to camp. Straight across from the Sioux cabin, right on the edge there. Fish shanty down over there, but beautiful view of the lake. Nice breeze off the lake. That is a very special place. Even when I still walk on the grounds of Fort and I come to that spot, that is always a special spot to me. But in 1997, I was teaching in one of the top schools in the United States. I was department head at this school. I had what most teachers would say was the dream teaching job. I taught the advanced biologicals. I had students in my classes primarily who didn't, they weren't required to take my classes. They took my classes because they wanted to take my classes. I taught human anatomy, physiology, microbiology, biotechnology, AP biology, environmental biology. I taught those kind of classes. Not requirements for graduation. These were all people wanting to go into a career, so they really wanted to learn. So I got spoiled like that. I also was spoiled because it was the richest school district in the state of Illinois and one of the richest school districts in the entire country. I loved my job. I loved. It was not going to work. It was going to fun every single day. I had great students. I absolutely loved my job. I worked with teachers that were so professional and so brilliant. I was humbled just to be in their presence. Phenomenal staff. The best principal I've ever worked with in my life. 
some of the best colleagues I have ever worked with in my life, brilliant individuals. Yet in 1997, God called, and he was talking to Denise and to me both after breakfast one morning, to leave my job at Reed Custer to come to Fort Wilderness to start a nature program. They didn't even have a nature building. I mean, those of you who have been to Nature Center, it's a garage. We still don't have a nature center. But God called me to that to come to Fort, to leave my job at the height of my teaching career. I just received another state award, and now God is calling me out of that to come and work at a, a develop a nature program at Fort Wilderness. And I was like, God, I don't want to do that. A lot of things happened. I'm not going to go through all the details of how the, what happened on this one Thursday, but a lot of things happened. And as I went to bed that night, there was no question in my mind, God was calling me to quit my job, my dream job, to sell basically I have, to leave all my friends, to come up into the north woods of nowhere, living in a town called McNaughton, or sorry, sorry McNaughton, and to live there and bring my family and my kids there, them leaving their friends, and it was not an easy decision like that, but to bring my family up there. And that night, as we laid down in our tent to go to sleep, I was so bothered by what God was putting upon my heart. A lot of people would be really excited about it. I wasn't. To be totally honest with you, I was not happy at all. This was not thrilling me at all. I loved what I was doing so much. So that night, as we laid in a tent, I told Denise and the kids, I said, I got to get up and go to the moonbeam which was a partial truth, because I did get up and go to the moonbeam. The bathroom. Yeah, those of you who don't know what the moonbeam is, it's the bathroom. But from the bathroom, I went over and I sat down at the flagpole. And it was a beautiful, beautiful starry night. The stars were just magnificent. You could see the Milky Way. And I sat down there, and I had an argument with God. I said, God... You got the wrong guy. You do not take a guy who's 40 years old, who's got a Bible club at a public school, which I did, who is teaching at the school like I am teaching at, who is also the youth coordinator at his church, who is also on the praise team at his church, who is the director of drama at his church, who is an elder at his church, and you don't take somebody and, and take them out of that because of the ministry that's being gone there. You don't take that person and send them up there. I said, God, you're doing this wrong. You get somebody right out of college. And I, I'm not kidding. I sat there till 3 a.m. arguing with God. And every time I would say, and I did, I audibly talked to God that night as I was saying things to him, and immediately he would throw a verse into my head, countering exactly what I said. And then I would say, well, I don't want to, I, I can't raise money. I don't want to go out and ask people to raise money. And then he says, well, I'm going to supply all your needs. And this kept going on and on and on for hours, probably at least four hours, because I know it was at three o'clock in the morning, I finally gave up. Because he did this to me. He had the words of this hymn come into my mind. And he, I felt him saying, Michael, how many times have you sung this hymn, I'll go where you want me to go? As it goes, 
it may not be on mountain high, on mountain height, or or the stormy sea. It may not be in the battle's front. My Lord will have need of me. But if by a still small voice he calls, to paths I do not know, I'll answer, dear Lord, with my hand in thine. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord over mountain or plain or sea, I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. And as those words went through my mind, I felt God saying, were you just singing that to make noise or did you mean it? And I felt, are you calling me out on a hymn? And I felt him saying, yes, because by singing that, you were making a promise to me. And it was at that point I said, you got me. I can't, I, I can't argue anymore. You got me. And I said, if you want this to happen, I will go. I will quit my job. I will come up here. I will do this. That was in 1997, 20 years ago. Maybe God is doing the same thing with you right now. Maybe God is saying, I've got a job for you. You need to be the salt to go out into this corrupt world and be my representative. Show them my love. Tell them about me. These people are hurting in the streets and on the byways. Tell them about me. I can't help but believe that there's at least one person sitting here listening to this that God is doing that type of talking to you. You don't have to wait till you're 40, folks. Is God saying that to you right now? Father, we thank you so much for this time we have here. And what a beautiful lesson. What this parable is, is just magnificent. And Lord, you do call us out. You've called us to be holy, to live lives that are holy, to be an influence into this world. We are the salt, the preservative. We are the one that's supposed to give the flavor. We are the ones, Lord, that are supposed to be a beacon of light to this corrupt and morally degenerative place of people all over this planet. We're your ambassador. We're your, your voice. But, Lord, we can't do it unless we live a holy life committed totally to you. And I can't help but think, Lord, that there's somebody right now that your spirit is talking to and is speaking to and is saying, will you go where I want you to go? Will you say what I want you to say? Will you live that holy life to these people? I believe that's what you're asking us. So may your Holy Spirit continue to work upon our hearts and our minds tonight. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.